One of the wonderful things about the gospel of Jesus is that it encompasses all kinds of people. Where salvation in the Old Testament was on offer almost exclusively to Israel. Of course, there are some significant exceptions to this. Though in the Old Testament, they were simply a foretaste of what was going to come in the future. What you see in the Old Testament, by and large, is that salvation was on offer to Israel, God's people. Though what we see in the New Testament, that with the coming of Jesus, we see the door of salvation. Essentially, if you want to picture a picture in your mind, the door of salvation is flung open to encompass any person who would come and trust that Jesus had dealt with their sin when he died on the cross. This is the wonderful gospel of Jesus, which declares the words of Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11. And so what we see in the New Testament is that the gospel and salvation is open to all people. And we must remember this and actually be thankful for this, especially when there are people in church that are not like us. Because it is a reminder of this truth that all people can come and be saved. Though one of the realities that we must face up to, and this is where Romans 14 and 15 are helpful for us, one of the realities that we must also face up to is that having a multi-generational, a multi-history and multicultural church, it'll come with its challenges, won't it? Let me explain what this looks like for us in Gaira. By the grace of God, as I look out on you this morning, we are a pretty diverse bunch of people, aren't we? This is something to give God thanks for. Though we need to put our minds then to how we navigate the challenges that come up through this. For example, you have me as your vicar. For some of you, that might be enough challenges. If you end there, that'd be great. But I spent 32 years uh, attending and working in Anglican churches in Sydney before I moved to the country. Uh, This means that while my church life has been very rich, uh, using the formal liturgies found in the prayer book has not featured very highly in my church experience and history. Uh, I'm also used to almost exclusively singing contemporary and modern songs in church. That's just the reality. These two things alone mean that sometimes uh, traditional hymns and rigid prayer book services can feel stuffy and restrictive. That's the reality. You've also got people like Kirsty. I'll add Vernon to this category as well. Um, But Kirsty grew up in a Baptist church. Uh, For these guys, the idea of dioceses, priests, bishops and prayer books is a completely foreign idea. Through no fault of their own, they are not experienced in doing church the way us Anglicans do, whatever that means. 
You've also got, she just came back, you've also got people like Narelle, who for many years travelled around Australia with Ron, being an encouragement to brothers and sisters as they work with BCA. This means that just as I have a different church experience to many of you, just as Kirsty and Vernon have a different ministry experience to you, Narelle also has different ministry experiences to us as well. She has a wealth of knowledge and experience in all the many different ways that faithful ministries can be run. You might like to ask her afterwards what some of those are, but I will tell you that it would have been a refreshing and rewarding experience seeing ministry happening in lots of different ways. We've also got our friends from the Pacific Islands. Thinking of culture, theirs is completely different to ours, isn't it? In almost every single way which we need to remember because with the practice of our church and the significant language barrier that exists between us and them, we need to remember that their commitment to coming each week, well, it's huge, isn't it? And so we need to make it our mission to welcome them with open arms, just as Paul has talked in recent weeks about God's people being part of the family. We need to make them feel like they are welcome in the family. Now, all of this is just to highlight that even though we are all believers, having a multi-generational, multi-history and multicultural church comes with its challenges, doesn't it? And this is precisely what we're going to learn about in Romans 14 and 15. Because today we're going to think about how we meet the challenge of dealing with our differences. So different to our history, preferences and heritage, we're going to hear today and we're going to learn how we deal with our deeply held, yet in the end, unimportant differences. And different to the last few weeks, where Paul has dealt with topics very quickly, Paul uses a lot of time in the closing moments of Romans to deal with this. Why is that the case? Well, firstly, because getting right what Paul tells us in chapter 14 and 15 is key to living as God's family. And secondly, getting this right is the key to God's people uniting in fellowship under the Lordship of Christ. So let's open up the passage and we're going to think about how we live with the challenges of a gospel who calls everyone to be saved. And we begin the passage in verses 1 and 9. We're not going to work through the passage so much today. We're going to think about it together. But we begin in verses 1 to 9, where Paul explains that just as we have our challenges, even though we might not feel like they're necessarily challenges, because we don't fight about them, do we? Even though we have our challenges, there were issues in the church in Rome. It would appear that deep down things were far more serious than they look in the passage because the issues that were present meant that there were two groups of Christians in that church and they were asking questions like this. Who should we accept as part of our church community? Should everyone be exactly like us? Is there room for difference of opinion on some matters in the Christian life? Who are the true believers of Jesus? They're serious questions, aren't they? 
Out of these questions, it would seem that there were two main areas of friction and division in the community. These were vegetarianism and observing the religious holidays. It's not just about the Sabbath, it's about all the holy days. And here we see what was happening. As different cultures came together under the Lordship of Christ, there were issues. Uh, Firstly, there were the Jews. Uh, To explain it very simply, the Jews observed the Sabbath and kept other various holy days. Uh, They were passionately devoted to them. The Gentile Christians, on the other hand, had no idea why they were so committed to them. You can kind of hear them, can't you? If Christianity is all about Jesus, then why do we need to do all these other things? That's the holy days. The Jews also had a problem of whether meat was appropriate to eat. Uh, In order for meat to be appropriate to eat for a Jewish person, it had to have been killed in a particular way and and the blood drained in the correct way. Now, just think about where they were. If they were at home in Israel, it would have been expected that this would have been done. But when they were in foreign lands, there was no guarantee that it would have been done. There was also the real possibility that the meat that they were eating had been used in some sort of pagan sacrifice. And so the origin of their food was a real issue. And so just like in Daniel chapter 1 in the Old Testament, often the safest way for Jews to eat outside of Israel was just to become vegetarians. And all of this was in the effort to sincerely live the way God had instructed them to. In the Old Testament, God had given laws to his people with the intention of them being separate from how the other nations around them behaved. There were laws about marriage, food, and really they are all summarised in how you remain clean and ritually holy. That's what the laws did. On the other side, you had the Gentiles. They were outside of God's promises in the Old Testament, but they had been brought in to the family when Jesus had died for sin. And so they understood that when Jesus died on the cross, it was possible for all people to be reconciled to God. They understood that it was only because of Jesus that they could be made holy. Nothing that they did, no keeping any festivals. It was only because of Jesus. And so as far as the Gentiles were concerned, the laws of separateness were now obsolete. You could also argue that trying to maintain such a practice was in the end opposed to the purposes and plans of God after Jesus brought this new salvation reality into the light. And so the Gentiles, as I would do, would gladly and heartily accept any fresh meat that was given to them. Amen. (laughs) In a similar way, the Gentiles understood that the holy days were prophetic signs pointing to the coming of the Christ. And so in their mind, now that he had come, they were fulfilled, which meant that they didn't have any power anymore. And so they lived trying to glorify God, not on special days, but every single day. Now, 
What do you think would happen when you got these two groups together? That'd be fun, wouldn't it? What do you think would happen when you tried to get these two groups together to make something resembling the locally gathered body of Christ? What do you think it would look like? Well, for starters, the first group, the Jews, see the second group as lawbreakers. They eat polluted food and they ignore the sacred festivals. The second group looks at the first group and they see a whole bunch of people who are willfully bound to superstitions and taboos, knowing nothing of the freedom of the gospel, nothing, knowing nothing of the freedom that the gospel of Jesus brings. Well, even if these two issues didn't cause a full-blown divide in the community, it would create an environment marked by tension of friction, judgment, factions, insiders and outsiders. They were a group who had great difficulty relating to each other. And so with the squabbles that can happen in churches, Paul's message is a very simple one for them and us, and it is this. Accept each other. That's what he says. Accept each other. He says it three times. We first hear him say it in verse 1. Except the one whose faith is weak without quarrelling over disputable matters. It comes up again in verse 3 when he speaks about our accepting of others being motivated by God's love shown towards us. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. It also comes up again in chapter 15, verse 7. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. The acceptance language in these verses is highly significant because the word in the original language, in the Greek, is proslambano, which is a way of describing the act of welcoming someone into your inner circle. That's what the word means. Which means that in Romans 14 and 15, uh, Paul is telling us That just as we have been brought into Jesus' inner circle, that's what verse 3 tells us, just as we have been brought into Jesus' inner circle, in his church, God expects all of us to do the same with our fellow believers, even if we have issues and differences over the way that we live our faith. At this point, though, I need to point out that though Paul is telling us to accept one another, this acceptance will have its limits. In these verses, did you notice, Paul is only talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not a word from God's apostle that commands us to be accepting of the behaviour of people who are not believers. Which means that Paul is not instructing us to accept those who openly and unrepentantly persist in immoral behaviour. To do so would see us accepting people into fellowship who openly deny their profession of faith in Christ by the way that they live. 
You can read more about these situations in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. That's Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, where you see two situations appear, one that Jesus addresses and one that Paul addresses. And you will see in those passages that neither Jesus or Paul promote acceptance when there is a moral behaviour. In fact, we see both of them instruct us very clearly to exclude people from fellowship who deny the gospel in how that they live. Instead here, Paul is giving us a word for brothers and sisters to behave like we are part of a family. And especially for us, uh, for us to care for those among us who are described in the passage by Paul as being weak in their faith. Now, who likes to be thought about as being weak in their faith? No, we don't, do we? Though what we see, if we keep reading, is that Paul's meaning of weak and strong uh, is far deeper than what the words might assume. Because the people that Paul describes as being weak are those who have some hesitation about areas of life that would not be a problem if their conscience did not instruct them otherwise. In the passage, Paul highlights three areas where the weak in faith might have some issues. A food and holy days we've already touched on. And then in verse 21, he mentions wine. The strong, on the other hand, are those who have a clear enough grasp of God's revelation to have a perfectly clear conscience in eating meat regardless of its history or mode of preparation, drinking wine or alcohol in moderation, and working on the Sabbath and other religious festivals because they do not hold the same power that they used to. Paul is not saying that the strong are necessarily stronger in their relationship with God either. That's not what the original language leads us to believe. In the same way, the weak are not necessarily weak in their faith. Their weakness is simply a way of describing their sensitive conscience. In their mind, they are simply unable to do something that God allows without their conscience being affected, which means that they find it difficult to have fellowship with anyone who does. Though we need to be clear that the issues that Paul has in mind here, they're not issues of salvation. Instead, Paul is simply outlining that just as the gospel brings us freedom, as his saved people, there is freedom in the Christian life to act and behave differently, to come to different conclusions on matters that are not salvation matters. But the technical term for these areas of life is what Paul calls in verse 1, disputable matters. That's kind of the technical term. Now, I'll get to disputable matters in a minute, but the opposite of a disputable matter is an indisputable matter. And this is the message of the gospel. Where we have the freedom to live with a differing belief in a disputable area, Christians do not have the liberty to live under a different gospel. For example, the death and resurrection of Jesus is an indisputable matter. Our salvation depends on whether we accept and believe this truth. It's not the only indisputable matter. There's lots more, but I won't go into them now. Which means that people who say that they're Christian while not believing in Jesus' death and resurrection, they are not Christians. Therefore, 
we are not to accept them into fellowship. Though what is a disputable matter? Because Paul's not talking about those salvation issues. He's talking about areas of freedom in the Christian life. What is a disputable matter? Because that's what we're actually talking about this morning. Well, Don Carson helpfully says that disputable matters are indifferent matters in the sense that believing certain things or not believing certain things, adopting certain practices or not adopting them, does not keep a person from inheriting the kingdom of God. But I wonder, just as Don Carson has described these issues as indifferent, I wonder if you ever noticed that even though these areas of freedom can be called indifferent, they are frequently explosive issues that we Christians love to fight about. You ever noticed that before? Such issues could include a list like this. A drinking alcohol, smoking, a women preaching, gambling, getting a tattoo, your political affiliation, even your vaccination status, your support or opposition to taking up arms, creationism and evolution, having drums played in church, the translation of the Bible being read, or even the form of service being used. On all of these and more, even though they do not affect our salvation, whatever side of the fence we find ourselves on, the temptation for us is always to move disputable matters into the indisputable category and vice versa. That if you don't agree with me on this area of freedom, then you are in a different class of Christian. And I am up here and you are down there and you better come up to me if you're going to find acceptance in God's family. Friends, the Bible's message to us in Romans 14 and 15 is clear. On any issue that is not core to the Christian faith, on any matter that is not indisputable, a Christian should never be given the cold shoulder over some issue. Our differences should never destroy the fellowship that God died to create. We should never think that a brother or sister who holds a different view in the area of matters of freedom is any less a Christian just because we disagree with them over one little issue. Instead, the instruction is to accept one another because in the end, it is an expression of God's acceptance of us and actually all our strange ideas as well. But how do we do this? Well, Paul continu- as Paul continues, he makes it very clear that firstly, it will involve a lack of judgment on each other. Look at verse 10. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. A Christian should be marked by a sense of humility and respect shown to other believers. Put simply, life would be much easier if we all had a far more easygoing attitude to the Christian life. An attitude to life that respected other people's integrity, always being willing to give other believers the benefit of the doubt. As David Seckham helpfully says, 
we should know that if God has truly brought a person to faith in Christ, his spirit will be working in them to encourage them in the way of holiness and to make them stand. Paul speaks of judgment a lot in Romans. Firstly, in chapter 2, he tells us not to judge others because when we do so, we bring judgment upon ourselves. Here in chapter 14, though, he tells us that it damages the church. When we judge other believers, we pretend that we are sitting in God's position. Friends, our Heavenly Father has called all of us to bow the knee to him, not to our own interpretation of holiness. So how do you accept others? Well, firstly, instead of marking each other spiritually, we will work harder on judging our own hearts and examining our own actions before others. Secondly, in, from verse 13 in chapter 14, we will do our best to foster fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need to do our best because it, it requires very careful thought. And Paul understood how hard it is because in verse 14, which camp does Paul put himself in? He says, I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. What camp does Paul put himself in? He puts himself in the strong camp, doesn't he? As far as he is concerned, all foods are clean, all days are holy, and wine is a gift from God. Therefore, he makes it clear that believers in Jesus are free to enjoy or not to enjoy. But he also says in verse 15 that being strong comes with responsibility. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat... You are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. You see, just because you might be convinced that something is right, to draw another person into doing something contrary to what their conscience says has made clear, it will destroy them. And Jesus is very clear about this behaviour in that frightening passage In Matthew 18, verse 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Practically for me, even though I am convinced from the scriptures that drinking alcohol in moderation is a freedom that I have as a Christian, I have a friend who is convinced of the opposite. And for many reasons from his family history, he doesn't touch alcohol, ever. This means that when we catch up, we have coffee. We don't go to the pub. It also means that I don't have a beer when he comes over for dinner. It's not even available. We have cups of tea when he comes over. Because the reality is, as what we learn from chapter 14, to flaunt my freedom by doing what is against the conscience of my friend only creates obstacles to our fellowship. That's a practical example, but what about issues where you just have a differing opinion 
And it could be so easy to keep talking about your opposite opinion. Maybe something to do with the government or some other idea that you might have to others around you. Well, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19 is very helpful for us. Sin is not ended by multiplying words, but the prudent hold their tongues. If you know that you disagree over something that doesn't concern salvation or something that we do, the best practice in the Christian life is to stop bringing it up. Because the reality is that it doesn't really matter that much. And my dear friend Michael Allen, who is the assistant out at Moree, he and I think very differently about women preaching in church. Now, we could argue and argue and argue about that. Do you think we do? No. We're convinced of two completely different positions. And so we've talked about it and we move on and we love each other as brothers in Christ. Friends, we need to make it our mission to foster fellowship, to not cause stumbles and to bring up issues constantly in the Christian church when they are ultimately issues of freedom. And then thirdly, Paul tells us that we accept each other when we work for the good of each other. And we're in chapter 15 now. Because the reality is that to restrict our freedom for the sake of fellowship with other Christian believers and sisters, uh, Christian brothers and sisters, well, it inevitably involves cost, doesn't it? And you can't have fellowship if you're not willing to contribute to fostering it. And this is what Paul talks about for the rest of the passage. As thirdly, he explains that we need to work for the good of others. Chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbour for their good to build them up. Here Paul says that there is, there is no way the unity and fellowship of a church can be built up without self-sacrifice among God's people. If everyone is just in it for themselves, the whole thing falls apart, doesn't it? Paul's example for doing this perfectly is Jesus in verse 3. For even Jesus did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Friends, our hostility towards God made fellowship with him impossible. Yet our Jesus, without retaliating and with goodwill, bridged the gap between God and us so that reconciliation could happen. How does it go? By his wounds we have been healed and reconciled. Paul brings up Jesus here simply because he is the one who we strive to emulate His other person-centred strategy for saving the world, the other person-centred strategy of the suffering servant, is a strategy that we need to study and emulate in our lives because it is our job to build upon his foundation. Just as the door of salvation has been flung open to all kinds of people, we work for the good of others as they come into his family. Let's finish. It's interesting that uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've tackled quite small sections of Romans 
dealing with quite big issues. And here in a chapter and a half, Paul talks about one issue. This is simply because for Paul, the mutual acceptance of all kinds of Christians lives near to the heart of God's plan for the world. This is why as Romans reaches its climax, he spends so much time issuing a plea to all of us on either side of every kind of dividing fence, accept one another and rejoice in each other's membership of God's household. God's family should be one that is marked by joy. Even though we are different, we are united in Christ. Even though God's, God's, farm, God's family is one that should be marked by joy and we all need to know that these things only flow from Christian community when there is genuine acceptance and love for each other. The reality is, yes, we will have our differences. But in the grand scheme of things, they don't matter much, do they? This is because in the end, despite our differences... Are we striving towards things being the way that we want them to be? We're not, are we? In the end, despite our differences, all of us, with our differences, are striving towards the goal at the beginning of eternity when we will stand around the throne. Our goal is to take our place at the international fellowship of God's people around the throne of our Lord and King, where we will all stand together singing this song. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That is our goal. Eternity at the International Fellowship of God's People. So what is our goal until we reach that day? What is the job that God has for us as his people as we live in a fallen world? Well, having that day in sight, we make it our mission to enjoy each other's company. That's what we do. As we strive to all play our part in creating peaceful, agreeable and joyful fellowship with each other. Because against the backdrop of eternity our silly issues start to seem pretty silly, don't they? So what's the takeaway lesson from today? We'll come back to chapter 15, verse 5. Because it is this. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and with one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ has accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Amen.